If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. The Prime Minister has increased the size of the federal government by over 30%. So much so, you can't even tell when they're on strike. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon, 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Uh, Will Weber back on the board for the very last time uh, today. Spinning the Kingsman. And the reason being, it was on the state in 2015, Jack Eli, uh, the lead singer, who's singing those words that nobody can understand, passed away at the age of 71 after a long illness. Louie Louie, a huge hit in 1963 and sparked an FBI investigation. Are those lyrics obscene or are they not? Are they obscene? Uh, uh, <clears throat> um, I don't know because I can't understand what he's saying. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, if you're going to if you're going to take a song to court uh, and claim it's obscene, you have to at least understand what they're saying. And if you can't understand what it is they're saying in court, then how can you possibly uh, jump to the conclusion that they're obscene? Maybe that's the whole idea, you know, because they're hidden in there. Uh, spin it backwards. There must be something in there we're missing. Uh, it must be obscene. Uh, all right. Feel free to jump into the fun. Hey, it is an all-request Friday edition of Hamilton Today. So make the webman uh, work for his last pay here as he moves on. We'll chat about that a bit later. Uh, feel free, 905 645 to one uh, you can also talk text you can leave a last word you can join us one hour from now as uh, sorry two hours from now as we play hammerhead trivia sorry will i'm trying to shorten the day for you uh all right let's chat right now will weber has been uh, on the board for uh, the last few years here at uh, hamilton today the scott thompson show uh, you know the, the great thing about this position is you really become a part of the show but then you usually take that experience and go on to bigger and better things which is in fact uh, uh what Will is doing. So, Will, uh, I just want to take this time to, to thank you very much for all of uh, uh, the time you've spent working on the show, uh, not only when it's, it is uh, obviously on the air, but uh, the behind-the-scenes stuff, doing those cool little IDs and all the neat production pieces uh, that we hear. Uh, Will is the uh, the creator of all of those. So, Will, thanks very much. Greatly appreciated, and best of luck to you in your new endeavors. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a hell of a time here on 900 <laughs> Thank you, Hamilton. All right, there you go. Uh, no, no, he hasn't left the building yet, but close. All right, uh, another big day and uh, day 10 of the strike. Although we are hearing that there has been another offer put forward by the government uh, to the union. And uh, Friday afternoon, there where you get the rest of the weekend to kind of mull that over. Obviously, uh, the two holding firm on their 9% over three years, sorry, the government is, and um, the union just doesn't 
doesn't want to go there. So we'll see what this latest offer is, if it is more than the 9% or work from home, which is also a, uh, a sticking point for them. Very hard to unionize because every sort of situation is different. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, Justin Trudeau in New York City saving the world. And, you know, debating the, uh, the NATO 2% target, I think, is a distraction from the real issue, which is the Canadian military is greatly underfunded. So when you do that and, and, and help it out and fund it and give it the things that it needs, then you'll slowly arrive at your 2%. But uh, 2%, do we need 2%? That's not the issue. The issue isn't 2% in NATO. The issue is helping our military, which is greatly underfunded, and dealing with very, very inferior uh, technology. All right, what else do we go? Oh, Justin Trudeau is going to King Charles Coronation uh, coming up next month. No word yet on where he'll be staying or if it costs $6,000 a night. All right, uh, on the strike again, we're hearing that there's a uh, uh, an offer being made. Don't know what that is yet. We will be talking to Mackenzie Gray a little later on this hour. However, here is his latest report. One of the things that the union was banking on was that their absence from work, they thought it was going to cause a bigger disruption than it has. You know, if you've applied for a passport, yeah, there's issues there. If you have an immigration case, there's issues there. But on a day-to-day basis, the main interactions that people have with the federal government are getting their CPP checks, old age checks, things like that. Those are still going out the door. So the impact that the union might have thought that they have by being out on strike might not be the actual feeling that Canadians have. There could be other intervening factors that happen if the strike continues to drag on that makes Canadians feel a little bit more that these workers are out on strike. All right, NDP, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, very vocal that the Prime Minister has not been, uh, I guess, down with people. Um, I don't know what the Prime Minister can do. Uh, it, you know, I mean, it's a negotiation going on between the negotiators of the union and the government, so I'm not sure what else he can do. But uh, Jagmeet Singh, uh, although he holds the reins of this government, it's an NDP liberal government, he's asking where the Prime Minister is. Prime Minister went off to New York. I don't begrudge the Prime Minister going to sell Canada, to promote Canada internationally. I think that's very important. But I do have a concern about that happening when we're in the midst of one of the biggest strikes our country's ever seen. And the workers have said really clearly that the minister responsible has failed. And the evidence is clear. This isn't just uh, over a week of a strike. This is over two years of no contract. So I think the prime minister needs to get involved to make sure that there's work being done and that uh, all the folks responsible are working towards getting a contract as quick as possible. And uh, as the NDP leader said, uh, the prime minister is in New York, uh, but he said he is involved in, in watching what's going on. Here's what the prime minister had to say. I have been uh, directly and, and intimately involved uh, in the negotiations, in uh, hearing about uh, uh, what discussions are going on. I have deep faith in collective bargaining as a process. And we know that our negotiators uh, are putting forward serious offers and uh, working constructively with uh, laborers. All right, so there we have it. And uh, again, we'll be talking to uh, Mackenzie Gray from Global News coming up just after the 3.30 news. Get you an update there. It does sound like there has been uh, an offer made by the government to the union, so we're waiting for details on that. All right, um, you know, weather-wise, what you see is what you get. And as Chase said, it's going to rain. All right. Now what's next? And that's pretty much for uh, the weekend and heading into next week. So there you go. Lots of indoor stuff to do this weekend. All right. Uh, we learned over the course of the week that, uh, I guess it was just yesterday, Jerry Springer passed away day before. And uh, I remember very vividly when Jerry Springer started on the air and the controversy that it caused by um, uh, bringing this sort of show to 
the masses, I guess. And, and, and in some senses, in some cases, some even questioned whether it was an exploitation of other people's problems and people who uh, are down and out in some way. Uh, and now you got to wonder as you look around, isn't the whole world just a big Jerry Springer show? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. What are your thoughts on Jerry Springer? Uh, I'm sure you remember when this show came on, the buzz that it created. Now I'm wondering, would this show fly now? Would it even be developed now? Or is this just social media now? You know what? This is really is social media. This was the airing of dirty laundry of people that you had no idea of and with the most salacious problems. And, you know, in fact, when I told my husband, I said, Jerry Springer died. How did he die? I don't know. Somebody threw a chair at him. (laughs) Yes. But I watched Jerry Springer in the afternoon the same way you watch Jerry Springer. And, you know, it was the beginning of paternity tests. It was the beginning of exposing cheaters. It was the beginning of exposing faults in relationships. It was the original mass airing of Dirty Laundry. And we all sat transfixed. And we were even happier when some sort of, you know, little skirmish broke out mm. between, especially if, you know, when the when the women would start getting mad at each other and start beating each other up because, you know, mm. he's my man. No, he's my man. And it was it was actually just sort of like real voyeuristic type of TV. So and and it was the first time that there was really that, you know, in a way that the audience, the studio audience became part of the show itself, because I think we all remember that there was obviously they were prompted. But, you know, when there was something that was sort of gasp inducing, the audience would all jump up and pump their fists and yell, Jerry. Jerry and 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 like, you remember right Scott like tell me you yeah, remember this I do I do is it expl- it was it cuz remember a lot of people thought you know you're just exploiting people who are down and out you're exploiting um you know the underbelly of society is that accurate um, I think we thought about it until everybody else jumped on the bandwagon. Okay. I mean, you know, at first everybody was thinking, ooh, exploitation. And then you have someone like Oprah who wasn't above uh, creating a show, daughters who get pregnant by their fathers and have the babies. So oh, everybody, man. you know, depending on who you were, I mean, was it salacious if Jerry Springer did it? Yes, but was it less salacious and more of a of an issue when Oprah did it? Oh, well, maybe we put a different lens on that. But it all began with Jerry Springer. He was the first one to sort of like break down, what do they call it, the fifth wall and say, well, I'm going to show people's lives and messy the way they are. This is not a sitcom. This is not going to be tied up in a pretty bow at the very end. And and life is like that. Life is not always tied up in a pretty bow after 30 minutes. So I think what he did was is that he actually opened the doors to a genre that was much replicated by many of the talk show hosts that came after him. I mean, do you remember? I mean, oh, my goodness. You know, there was Geraldo Rivera. There was Montel yeah. Williams. There was Sally jesse Raphael, who could forget her and her glasses and they all may have had cooking segments in between but what really was uh the you know the thing that was the bait that got people watching were those type of jerry springer storylines have we learned anything from this because really are, are they still around and i guess they're just replaced with social media tidbits but did we learn anything do we do we pause no. and look back <laughs> yeah really 
I'm, there's that optimistic side of me coming out. <laughs> I, 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 I see it so rarely, but, you know, I'm going to jump on it. Did we learn anything? I think that we learned that we have an appetite for that that we don't really necessarily want to look at. And that, you know, when we talk about voyeurism and we talk about, like, for example, now, if we're on social media and a building blows up, I mean, you probably go on Twitter to see the building blowing up. Yeah. Or if there was a gun attack, you know, you will go onto Twitter nowadays or anywhere, YouTube, and actually see a replay of the latest uh, gun shooting in the U.S. And it might be pixelized here and there. And now you see it. And before it was like, you know, should this really be on, on social media? And people were yeah. like, well, if you don't want to watch it, don't look. But now I think we all want to look. Are we numb to this behavior now? Yes, I think we are. I think that even I, I, I am surprised at my own behavior. You know, you'll hear about a shooting and then you'll click on the link and you, you listen, you know what's going to pop up and then yeah. you'll see some sort of um, snippet of what went on. And it kind of leaves you thinking, well, gee, is there any more footage? Is there anything else I can go look at? So it's really sort of like taken away the boundaries of that, which would sort of be kept in our own homes behind closed doors. And now it seems to be all fair game if you let it. So there would a show, like, is there a need for a show like this now or has social media replaced that? You know, I think we talk about social media replacing it, but I think that there's a lot of these other shows that are also on that have replaced it. So, for example, um, Big Brother. Right. When, you know, they're all in in the house and they're all doing dastardly things to one another and revealing their. Yeah, their good secrets. point. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's The Bachelor, all right? They end up in the... Some of the best parts of The Bachelor is when you find out that one of the Bachelorettes actually has a boyfriend on the side or uh, has been cheating (laughs) or or, or whatever. Um, All of these Netflix shows, Love Island, which is rife with controversy. So it's all just, it's the same premise, Scott, but what it is, it's, it's the wrapping is different. We're all Jerry Springer now. Uh, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, always fun. Have yourself a great weekend. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. (laughs) I need some of that for Scott, Scott, Scott. All right. Thank you, Alyssa. It's one syllable, though. It wasn't working for me. Yeah, it's not going to work. Thank you, Alyssa. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You certainly know that there is a public service strike going on, or maybe you don't. Uh, we are in day 10 at this point, and getting rumors that there is a deal on the way or has been presented uh, to the union from the government. To talk more about all of this and where we are, Mackenzie Gray, national reporter, Global News, covering Parliament Hill, and here now. Mackenzie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Nice to be on with you. So is it is that accurate, Mackenzie, that uh, there is an offer on the table? What do we know? <clears throat> yeah, the federal government uh, gave another proposal to the union this afternoon. Um, no word on any of the details from that. I've reached out to my Forte's office. They've been really tight-lipped. The union just put out a statement basically you know, confirming receipt of the uh, offer. Uh, but both sides have said that they're willing to negotiate through the weekend. So um, <clears throat> it certainly seems like uh, the union is not dismissing what Mona Forte, the Treasury Board president, has brought to them out of hand, uh, but it doesn't look like uh, the offer as it stands right now will be accepted. Um, you know, but this is a more encouraging sign uh, than where we were, you know, even just this morning. The new negotiations uh, were taking place again, uh, but judging by the language that we heard from kind of both sides over the last few days, it certainly didn't seem like 
uh, a deal was imminent. But as with any negotiation, if one side is willing to move a bit, that can get the ball going and uh, things could be dealt with fairly quickly. Any significance to this happening on a Friday, Mackenzie? We certainly know in the business, if you want to get a story out and, you know, have really people not pay too much attention to you on a Friday afternoon, anything about this or is this just the ongoing negotiation process? I don't think it's a, a Friday news dump, um, you know, and, and a part of that is because both sides are willing to negotiate through the weekend uh, to try and get something done. I, you know, I don't think it's in the government's best interest to continue to just present offers that they know are not going to be accepted. Um, but that being said, if the union is stuck in on their wage demands and on their right to work from home, which are the key two things at this point in time, um, you know, no offer the federal government's going to give uh, outside of what the union's been asking for is going to get the job done. I don't think that's the situation that we're in right now. Um, but, you know, kind of going back to what you were saying in your intro, uh, you know, where's the political pressure on the government to get this done? Uh, I think for many folks um, who might be listening, uh, the impact of this strike might not be felt by a lot of your listeners unless you're, you know, needing to get a new passport this instant, uh, maybe family members who have an immigration claim going forward. There are kind of specific, more one-off instances. But this isn't like a postal strike or a garbage worker strike or strikes that happen at the municipal and provincial level where people interact with that level of government a lot more on a day-to-day basis than they do with the federal government, in particular because the big transfers, the big payments, you know, CPP, things like that, are still going through and are impacted by the strike. That being said, we certainly have seen in the last couple of days, as they were at odds, both sides, uh, demonstrations uh, on bridges, this sort of thing, and in, in, in public uh, points where it is going to make uh, a bit of a disruption. Are they uh, surprised that, uh, or are they, that the public is or is not paying attention to this? Did they think they would be paying more attention? Like you said, the old days of a postal strike, it was crippling. The, I, I think that would be one of the big calculations, Scott, that the, the union uh, made that I think they've miscalculated in this scenario, kind of tying back to what I was saying before. You know, the rhetoric from the union leaders um, kind of on the eve of the strike and subsequently was that, you know, Canadians, the, the government is going to really feel it and Canadians are going to really feel the fact that we've walked out. Uh, you know, again, it, it, unless you're dealing with those kind of specific instances that I mentioned, I don't think at this point in time people are really feeling it from a service perspective. Now, yesterday, folks at Pearson Airport were blocking one of the terminals. Well, you're going to feel that. Uh, And, you know, for folks here in Ottawa, there have been some disruptions when it comes to parking and traffic and things like that. But the union has, I don't think they've got anywhere close to nuclear in terms of blocking things off. And that is a delicate balance for them uh, in terms of blocking things. Uh, You know, the last time a big group of people went and blocked stuff around the country, it did not turn out very well for them during the convoy. I don't think the union uh, has the same... Uh, appetite to go to that level. Uh, but if they can't get a deal, they do need to ratchet up the pressure in some way. And that is the ace they do up, have up their sleeve to try and put a little bit more pressure on the government. Uh, the last couple of days, they've seemed to be butting heads and locked ra- very much into the government, the 9% over three years. Are we to assume, and I know you shouldn't assume, but because there is an offer on the table that it has to do with money, that perhaps the government might uh, come up on that 9% over three years? There are other things that they've been talking about. There's been, uh, you know, conversations about uh, signing bonuses. Uh, and, uh, you know, we heard from Mara Forche over the last couple of days saying, look, I don't have much more wiggle room to go past 9% here. Um, so it might be more on the right to work from home, which in particular for folks here in Ottawa, where obviously there's a lot of government workers 
is a massive issue. People have been uh, enjoying working from home. Many of the protesters we speak to think that, uh, you know, I spoke to one today that said, well, the, the rules that the federal government has right now that you can work from home two to three days a week. Well, we think once this collective agreement, if it's not in there, it's going to go back to five days a week, and we don't want that. Uh, people are used to working from home, and they don't want to lose that. Maybe there's some movement on that front there. It is really tough to say. Uh, I will say, you know, when Ms. Forche says, I don't have authorization to go past 9%, um, you know, this government has been pretty freewheeling in the amount of money that they spend. I think it's more likely that they spend more money than they give up the, uh, the, in the collective agreement to have the right to work from home in there because there would be major implications from that perspective for the many other unions that the federal government has to negotiate with uh, in the coming years. That's my next question, Mackenzie. How can you, I mean, we've got a very broad union here and it covers a lot of people doing a lot of different things. There's some situations where, you know, you can work from home and you can be productive and it works, but there's other situations where you, you just have to be there face to face for the job that you do. How can you unionize something like working from home when there's so many different aspects to it? And it's really, it's not a one size fits all, which a lot of these gr- agreements tend to be. Yeah, I spoke to Michael Wernick, who's the former head of the Privy Council, uh, who would know a thing or two about the public service. Uh, and he basically said the same thing to me today. Look, that there's, you know, the, the federal public service spans all kinds of different things. You know, there's park rangers. They can't work from home when they're uh, in a national park. There's guys at the border. Uh, but then there's also people who do clerical work and, you know, generally have an office job where that kind of work could make more sense to be at home. Uh, I think the politics of this, though, is uh, the liberals have been under fire uh, less so right now, but, you know, think back to the travel issues that we had, think back to the passport issues that we had, the immigration backlogs being massive. There is a general feeling uh, brought on by a lot of political conversation, in particular by the conservatives, that the federal civil service is not working at the same level that it was pre-pandemic. And uh, mm-hmm. for many people, that is associated with the fact that people are working from home. There was a political ramification to this for the government to allow people to be there for a consistent period of time. Uh, but they have put, I think, a reasonably reasonable offer on the table to say, look, basically 50 percent of the time you need to be in the office, 50 percent of the time you can work from home. Uh, you know, if you're the union, you might be thinking, too, well, what kind of an offer am I going to get from the Justin Trudeau government? And what kind of an offer am I going to get from the Pierre Polyev government? I bet a lot of money that the offer they're getting right now from Justin Trudeau, whether it be on work from home, whether it be on any topic, is going to be more generous than what they get from Pierre Polyev. Hmm. Good point. Mackenzie Gray with us, national reporter for Global News covering Parliament Hill. It looks like there is an offer being tabled by the government to the union. We'll wait and see what happens. Mackenzie, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Have a good weekend. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Hey, do you want a tree? Free. Uh, the city of Hamilton starts the first of three free tree giveaways as well as a compost giveaway event this weekend. We find out more and how you can get yours. Robin Pollard is with us, manager of forestry and horticulture, city of Hamilton. And with us now, Robin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great. Thank you. Tell us what you're doing. What's the objective here? So we've got two separate programs. Uh, the forestry um, section of the city of Hamilton, we're running the free tree giveaway. The intent is to provide about 3,000 trees to residents of Hamilton uh, so that they can plant them on their private property. We have other programs where we plant trees within public property, but this is a great opportunity for people to plant on their own private property. So in a backyard or side yard or something like that. 
the compost giveaway is uh, is being done by the waste people in the city. Um, I don't want to speak too much about it because it's not my program, but uh, it's a it's a great program that's that's being done with the yard waste that's collected, and that um, that yard waste is then turned into a, a beautiful nutrient rich compost. And how long have you been doing the free tree giveaway? This is year number two of a full program. Uh, so we're really happy to bring it back again in, in 2023. 2022 was uh, was a bit of a different program. We had a registration process. We've tried to really simplify it this year and kind of, uh, I don't want to call it grassroots, but it's more of a grassroots program at this point where it's um, show up. We'll have trees on all of the three dates. So you don't have to attend the first date. Um, and, and the goal is to get, a, get rid of as many as we possibly can within those three dates. And if we don't hit our goal of 3,000 trees between those three, uh, three weekends, we're going to do it again in June. And we'll, we'll figure out some, uh, some interesting ways to, um, to continue the program. So tell us about the trees. How, where do they come from? These trees are coming from local nurseries. Uh, so they're small two-gallon trees. They're all native species. So we've got quite a few different options of ornamental and shade. But again, we've procured them from local Ontario nurseries um, and brought them into our uh, forestry yard. And we'll have them delivered to Turner Park for the three weekend uh, events. And how many can you get? Each person that shows up can have one tree. So you show up with a driver's license or a property tax bill. You provide that to uh, one of the employees and they'll, that'll be your proof that you live in Hamilton and you can have one tree. So if one car shows up with two people that live at two separate addresses and you've got the identification, you'll be driving away with two trees. But uh, if you've only got the proof for one person, again, just, just one tree per person. And depending upon how long the trees last depends on if you schedule more of these beyond the, the three that you've got. Absolutely. We'll run the three events. There will be trees at the three events, but after that, we'll, uh, we'll see where we're at. So uh, what types of trees can someone hope to get? Uh, do you get to choose what type of tree? So what, we're, what we've got is we've got ornamental trees, which would be small things that are flowering. You might get fruiting type trees like a, a cherry or um, a service berry. And then we've got our larger shade trees. So for people who have a little bit more space on their property, maybe a white oak or um, a basswood or a beech, uh, we have white pines, white spruces. Those are gonna be you know, the shade trees that you need a little bit more room. In terms of choosing, you can choose between ornamental or shade, but we're not gonna be allowing um, too much choice beyond that because we're trying to get people to move through. We're, we've got a lot of trees to give away. So for as much as we, we love to sit and chat all day about trees, we're gonna try and keep it moving along. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's not quite a trip to the nursery. It's not quite a trip to the nursery. No, uh, staff would love to talk about it all day. But like I said, we, for, you'll have a choice between ornamental and shade and, and they'll pick the best one for you. And so give us the logistics, when, where, and, and all that sort of thing. Okay, so the first one is tomorrow, so April 29th. It's going to start at 7 a.m. We'll be done at 12 p.m. Then we've got uh, May 6th and May 13th. Uh, same times, and they'll be up at Turner Park. So if anybody knows the area just off Rymel there, uh, behind the um, Hamilton Police Station, you'll drive in, you'll see some signage. There's there's staff there, um, and, and follow the signs and get your free tree. The compost giveaway, again, is also tomorrow from 7 to 12 at Turner Park, as well as at Joe Sam's Park up in Waterdown. Same times, um, and then again, they'll be running 
uh, events on May 6th and May 13th, just at Turner Park, those dates, nothing at Joe Sam's. And can we get any information on the website? Absolutely, yeah. We've got the free tree giveaway website. So if you uh, Google hamilton.ca slash tree giveaway, you'll find ours. And then if you go for hamilton.ca slash compost, you'll find the compost giveaway. All right. Good luck this year, Robin. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Robin Pollard with us, manager of forestry and horticulture, city of Hamilton, free trees. Well, one anyway, well, per household, and, you know, you got to have enough to go around. And, of course, you can hit the city of Hamilton website to find out more about this and the free compost giveaway. There you go. We've been talking a lot over, well, post-pandemic, we're in a new world. Uh, we've already talked about that twice today. Remember, it was every single day we would talk about the global pandemic and how we get through it and all that sort of thing. Uh, we're moving on, and I, a lot thought, once we got out, well, life is back to normal. But then, my goodness, what is the new normal? What is the new normal where, you know, whatever it is, whether it's going back to work or, or, or education, what have you. And a lot of people are grappling, companies and organizations grappling with what to do. We're seeing this right now with the strike and working from home with the federal employees and such. And uh, a lot of comment earlier on uh, in the week as Premier Ford and the headlines were lowering the bar for police officers and all sorts of and all sorts of things like that um, when in fact uh, obviously there is a shortage and a recruiting drive is going on pretty much right the way across the country to find everybody in every occupation uh, Randall Denley has a great column in the National Post and in the Ottawa Citizen Ottawa takes steps to find more workers will it be enough government and employees may need to look at potential rather than rather than education to fill the vacancies and to talk more about all of this Randall Denley author and columnist with the Ottawa Citizen and the Post Randall thanks for the time I hope you're well I am. Uh, this is an interesting point you're making here, Randall, because I'm old enough to remember when uh, some people didn't even have a high school diploma. They would finish at grade 10 as soon as they could get out of school and start earning money and and creating a living for themselves, whatever it is that they decided to do. And then it was, well, man, if you don't have grade 12, you don't have anything. You've got to at least get your high school diploma. And then, of course, that was the standard, the bar. And then after that, it was a post-secondary education, whether it be in a college or university or what have you. And, you know, it's not as if anything has really happened in a lot of these positions to create that need. Uh, and now I guess we're wondering why we're doing it. Uh, what are your thoughts and, and what was the main objective of your column? Uh, what I was trying to point out in this one, Scott, is that I think the biggest problem that Ontario has after the health care mess is the incredible shortage of workers we got. And it's affecting pretty much every sector. There's more than 300,000 vacant jobs in Ontario. We just can't find people to fill them. And it doesn't seem to matter, you know, what area you look at. It's it's relevant in this policing thing. It's hard to get an overall statistic, but the OPP alone is short of 1,000 officers. So how are they going to get them? I, I think, you know, Ford was doing a couple of things here this week. One, increasing training capacity, which is good, but sending the message that, you know, the police are actively looking for people. And while there isn't an official standard in the province that you must have post-secondary, uh, most forces hiring have been going that route. You know, much preferred we hire somebody 28, person with a degree, that kind of thing. It, it's great, I guess, if you can get as many people as you want that way. 
But if you can't, then I think all employers have to be a little more creative and say, well, who's got potential? Who could we train rather than who comes supposedly ready to go? Because, look, he's, he's got a degree in English, so he's going to be a tremendous cop, obviously. Hmm. <laughs> it, it doesn't really follow to me. I mean, there's a lot more looking they do at a person's credentials, but I think in the police in particular, the question is, you know, do you really need uh, post-secondary education to do that job? And it's a good question in a lot of other jobs, too. If you look at something like a, a library technician, you know, you're putting books on shelves and organizing things, and you know, most libraries, when they post that kind of job now, say, Oh, yeah, but you have to take a two-year community college course. What in the world could you possibly learn over two years that would be essential for that job that your employer couldn't teach you in a month? But because we have so much credentialism now, if there's a community college course for something, then an employer says, well, you better have that. Look, there's a course. It only keeps people out of the labor force that spend years in post-secondary education, but it's not always relevant and the I think that's the point that you know Ford is trying to make and sending a message to police services look be a little more creative in how you reach out to people because there's no point in increasing training capacity unless people come forward and I think that's such a big challenge and particularly in policing because certainly not a week goes by where you don't hear some negative story about police mm. somewhere and there's people in society who work quite hard now to make us believe that you know, the problem isn't crime. It's the police. They're the bad guys. Yeah. But you can see why people might say, yeah, I don't really think that's a job for me. So it's a tough sell. Have we spent too much time? And again, education is great. My goodness, the more you have, I guess, the better. We're all, you know, I, I'm not in school anymore, but I'm continuously trying to learn. Um, have we focused too much on education and not enough focus on occupation? And I can think of the same discussion when we're talking about the trades. Yeah, and I think that's something that uh, the Ford government is getting right because they've really been sending a message for quite a while you know, to parents, to kids in high schools, that these are good jobs. They pay a lot of money. It's an apprenticeship. Maybe some of the apprenticeship's a little long, but it's an apprenticeship. You can start working on it now in high school. They're really, I wouldn't say pushing people in this direction, but they're sure showing them that the door is open to this kind of work because we need a lot more people to do that. But I, I know when I was raising my kids, the general feeling among parents was, well, if your kid didn't go to university, yeah. that's some kind of a failure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, like, you know, you let your kid down, you didn't go to university, maybe college, but you know, it wasn't really the same. Everybody had to have some kind of professional job. Nobody wanted a non-professional job, and that's one of the reasons why we're so short of a lot of things that we need right now. And, uh, you know, they talk about this huge housing boom where supposedly going to have in Ontario, who's going to do all that work? Because we just don't have enough people in the trades to do it. And the government is doing probably everything it can do to encourage people in that direction. But it's it's the right thing to do. And it, I think we've also got seduced by the idea that education is something you get by going to school as mm. opposed to 
something you might learn by doing or reading or just being a person active in the world. You know, it's yeah. I was educated till I was 21, then I quit learning. But look, I've got my paper here. Yeah. It's, it's too much, I think, attention focused on a piece of paper that's supposed to be a proxy for knowledge and intelligence. And, you know, about 60% of people in Ontario have got some kind of post-secondary qualification. They're not all going to fit on the right-hand side of the bell curve. So you have a university degree. It doesn't mean you're intelligent, per se. It means you figured out mm. how to get through university. Take something. Yeah, but that's right. It's kind you... of a lazy way to evaluate people, I think. You played the game of school and did it well. Are we focusing enough on occupation as opposed to education? Randall Denley is with us, author and columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post. You can see his uh, latest in the National Post, Ontario taking steps to find more workers. Thanks so much for the time, Randall. Uh, Randall, have a great weekend. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Lots to talk about in regard to uh, world politics and such. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you, Scott. It's always good to chat with you. So your thoughts, uh, and, and, you know, I've got so many things here, I'll probably not even end up talking to you about what we were supposed to talk about. But I wanted to ask you your opinion on uh, President of Ukraine and China speaking uh, the other day and, and how this fits in, especially with China trying to position itself as not really being a friend of Russia, but yet supporting them. What do you think happened during this phone call? Well, among other things, it's way overdue. There were rumors that this phone call uh, which was already delayed, would happen during or immediately after uh, <laughs> Xi Jinping's three-day visit uh, with Mr. Putin a while ago. And all the chatter was, well, then he'll have to be in touch with Zelensky, won't he? Because he says he's a, a mediator, he says he's neutral. But it's quite clear China is not a neutral in this uh, in this entire aggression, war of aggression by Mr. Putin. He is a strong backer. That's why he went there for three days. Now we have a way overdue conversation, finally. We, and again, we don't know who called whom. Did Mr. Zelensky call she or vice versa? But they've agreed to talk to each other. And they've agreed to talk to each other at a critical moment because there's a thought that there's about to be a counteroffensive by Ukraine to finally in the spring, push back even more uh, the existence of the Russian aggression on temporarily occupied Ukraine, as they put it. So it was well worth uh, noting that it took place. The call went on for some time. But it looks as if Mr. Zelensky is doing what everybody else is doing, saying, China, you're the only one that has real influence over Russia. Why don't you do something to help them get out of this by telling them to get out? And China is saying, well, we're here to be neutral, meaning we would think you should sit down, negotiate with Mr. Putin, leave his occupying troops there, give up Crimea and sign a deal. That seems to be what the nature of the conversation was. Uh, so, in other words, less about a peace plan or a way out and more of just do what give Putin what he wants and this will all be over. Well, that's what China's view of a peace plan is. <laughs> they, yeah. they put out a 12-point plan. We I perhaps talked about it uh, at the time. Mm. Uh, and it starts out, point number one, um, states should not use uh, force, <laughs> should not cross into other states um, and infringe on their sovereignty. Territorial sovereignty is sacrosanct. And, of course, that's... <laughs> 
given where they are, that's a rather uh, a non-starter. They basically didn't say anything at all in that about Russia and Russia uh, having responsibility and therefore should withdrawing. They uh, did have some very interesting points in that 12-point plan that could be considered in a different environment. And if China got serious about being a mediator and a peacemaker, rather than being clearly a pro-Putin, a pro-Moscow ally, and it's a war, war of aggression against Ukraine. So, and correct me if I'm wrong here, China likes this instability. They just don't want it to get out of hand and ruin things for them. Is that accurate? Well, what they like, uh, we aren't sure if they like the instability. Their entire foreign policy is predicated upon harmony. We need global harmony. Uh, we need global peace. And that's why we, as an emerging power, always stand on the side of peace. But clearly, they, they don't. Uh, the three-day meeting that we just talked about ended with, and again, we aren't sure if this was a hot mic or whether it was an intended quote, but Xi Jinping saying to Mr. Putin, this is a 100-year opportunity to change geopolitics, and we are driving it, uh, he said approvingly. So this, this is an attempt to reorder the geopolitical scene in favor of autocracies, uh, primarily Russia and China. China will be backstopping. Russia, although not in a way that they can be accused of fomenting war, they will not provide demonstrably um, provable lethal assistance, but they are clearly providing the diplomatic cover and the economic support Mr. Putin needs. So this is, this is, a, this is a war to change geopolitics in favor of new powers setting the rules instead of the existing powers setting the rules, and that's not a world where Canada or any other democracy would prosper. So what if Russia loses? <laughs> what what if at the end of the day um, Ukraine takes back what was theirs, uh, or are they just assuming that's not going to happen? The uh, I've been saying right from day one that China's the big winner in all of this because uh, everybody was gearing up to deal with China and emergent China. Their reckless activities in the South China Sea and most importantly about Taiwan when suddenly. Putin took the heat off and drew world attention directly onto China. But after a year went by, you know, so he was a winner in that sense. China, Xi Jinping's China. I, I don't want to say China, but the regime in China that currently is in charge of the country was a clear yeah. winner in all this. Now, and, and then they got cheap gas and oil um, from Russia as a, as a byproduct of it. And they tied up the West. The West was all preoccupied. Now they're saying, um, well, if... And this is this is not the statement, but it's clearly in their intention. If Russia really comes out on the losing end of that, they still win because Russia will be reduced even more to a, a vassal state, an energy producing vassal state for China. And nobody's talking about this very much, but the empty spaces, more or less empty spaces, underpopulated spaces just to the north of China, some of which were taken away in what China considers to be unequal treaties, you know, the great national rejuvenation, the great mm. hundred years of humiliation, that's over. We are standing strong now, and we are going to lead the world by 2049. Uh, Russia would stand to be a clear loser if China decides to exert its influence in what Russia considers the Russian Federation or the former uh, Soviet Union. So China is doing well by this war no matter what.
Last question here. Um, uh, as far as an uh, interesting article in the Globe and Mail, Russia, Russians asking, uh, why are we fighting? Why is this happening? Is there, are we, and we talked about this a lot, but is there starting to be re- repercussions in Russia as to why we're doing this, why they're doing this? Well, it's the, re- it's the repression rather than repercussions that uh, should be our focus. The repression is successful. They have. Uh, we talked, I think, recently about uh, Mr. Navalny and uh, Kara Mirza. So we, the capacity to repress and to misinform the, the public is still at full strength in Russia. Mr. Putin controls all the channels of communication. But, of course, there is grumbling. Uh, you can't keep the kind of atrocities that he's committing there, uh, particularly when there's a lot of body bags going back home into the Russian heartland, not out of the remoter parts of the current Russian Federation. So it's no, no surprise that there's, um, there's grumbling, but there's no sign that this regime, the Putin regime, is going to crack in the near future. Hmm. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine and China's position on it. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Prime Minister went off to New York. I don't begrudge the Prime Minister going to sell Canada, to promote Canada internationally. I think that's very important. But I do have a concern about that happening when we're in the midst of one of the biggest strikes our country's ever seen. And the workers have said really clearly that the minister responsible... Has has failed, and the evidence is clear. This isn't just uh, over a week of a strike. This is over two years of no contract. So I think the prime minister needs to get involved to make sure that there's work being done and that the, all the folks responsible are working towards getting a contract as quick as possible. As the NDP leader said, the prime minister is in New York, again, on the heels of President Joe Biden coming here and uh, sort of re- reciprocating and keeping the lines of communication open, although some questioning that during the height of a uh, federal public service strike. Uh, let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science at McMaster University. And with us now, Peter, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. And thanks. Hope you are, too. So, Peter, uh, any sense in the prime minister getting more involved in these negotiations than he has? Should he be there? Should he be on the picket line as Jagmeet Singh has been meeting and greeting? Uh, or should he just sit back and, and, or, and let the negotiators do their thing? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, we probably don't want uh, the prime minister and cabinet sitting at the negotiating table. Uh, you know, their role is really to supervise the federal negotiators and, you know, approve of, uh, you know, what kind of realm of uh, contract they think is, you know, worth negotiating. So, yeah, it would be a bit odd, I think, ultimately, uh, to have the, the prime minister sitting at the table. But clearly, uh, you know, the prime minister and the cabinet have to read the public mood uh, and that will affect the kind of instructions they give to their negotiators in terms of what would be an acceptable settlement. Uh, we understand that uh, this afternoon another offer has been presented to the union. We have very, very little details of this at the uh, of it at this time. Uh, we remember yesterday, the day before, uh, sticking points. Nine percent was the wage increase over three years, uh, and nobody seemed to be budging on getting off that or on that. And that's arrived that figure from an independent arbitrator. Do you think at the end that that's what this will be about? It's whether that nine percent goes up or down. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a kind of a big piece of it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of public sector workers who are looking at the rate of inflation. And, uh, you know, just with, you know, workers everywhere, when you're, you know, bonding yourself into a contract, uh, you know, figuring out what your real uh, purchasing power is going to be at the end of it is, is, is hard to figure out when you have very uncertain levels of inflation. You know, we've had 20 years of very sort of staple rates of inflation, but now the past few, it's it's been up and it, it leads to the situation where you don't want to get locked into a contract where you end up worse off at the end of it uh, because inflation is eating away at it. Similarly for the federal government, they don't want to get locked into a contract where they have large wage increases and then, you know, inflation falls down and, uh, you know, there's a significant gain for workers. So, uh, yeah, I think we'll be seeing a lot of negotiation uh, around that number and it probably will end up not so far from it. Has the government backed themselves into a bit of a corner here um, by delaying this for two years and then, you know, increasing the size of the civil service by 30 percent? How do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the government, uh, you know, has made decisions about the size of the public sector. I mean, they picked up a a public sector that had been shrunk a fair bit under uh, the conservatives, but you know, in a manner where the shrinkage was mostly not replacing people who were retired. So we, we had a, a public service that was trying to do the same amount of work with fewer people, uh, you know, rather than one that had really shrunk what the the government did. And you know, from that starting point, then the, you know the liberals have have grown it, and it certainly does make it much harder for them to meet their deficit targets. Uh, um, but ultimately. You know, the federal government, much like our provincial governments, uh, have done fairly well over the the pandemic in terms of inflation really eating away at the the salaries of many public sector workers. Uh, You know, much more in the provincial level in Ontario, where we had, uh, you know, all public sector workers taking essentially, you know, three years of zero to one percent salary increases, even as inflation was much higher. Uh, but you know, federally, there's been a bit of a, a savings too to the the federal purse from uh, you know from this inflation. Uh, that being said, the prime minister is in New York City, uh, reciprocation visit, sort of speak, and talking about minerals and and trade and such. Uh, much to be gained here, or worth the optics. Well, I mean, I think he gains from the optics. Uh, you know, it's a way of appearing on a different kind of stage. So you know, it changes the channel. He probably. Uh, gets to telegraph uh, a message and you know he has the one on the one hand about the importance of investing in you know Canadian minerals uh, you know which were uh, you know clean minerals compared to those from China so he was also able to I think you know uh, uh, rattle the saber a bit in a way to to throw off some of the Trudeau Foundation questions he also got to you know posture on abortion which again I think he sees as a wedge issue that divides the Conservative Party internally and so it gave him an opportunity to talk about abortion in the United States, but clearly to reflect it back into Canada. So, I mean, any time a prime minister can go to the States and appear before an adoring audience, you know, it's the same for Trudeau as for Harper when he was prime minister. They'll, they'll take the occasion because the opposition parties are hard pressed to, to criticize. If they criticize, you know, too much, Canadians will see them as kind of running down the country when the prime minister is, you know, uh, abroad, you know, running, uh, making Canada look bad internationally. And so you see responses such as Jagmeet Singh's, which is, you know, not uh, to take on what Trudeau was saying, but simply to say, well, shouldn't he be home dealing with the more pressing issues rather than uh, gallivanting in, into the northern new United States? Peter Grant with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Always fun, Peter. Thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Yeah, and you too. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It is urgent to fix gaps in Canada's defenses against foreign interference before the next election. Uh, that was the news out of the public safety minister, Marco Mendicino, uh, on Thursday, yesterday, which is very odd considering when this was brought up many uh, months ago, uh, the prime minister said there was no interference and even used the word racism when asked by a reporter about one of his uh, MPs. Now, uh, after alleged interference in the last two elections, uh, we're seeing some movement on this. Will it happen? What will happen before the next election to make us feel more confident than we do now? Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Indeed. Good afternoon, Scott. Uh, are you surprised, Christian, that Safety Minister Marco Mendicino is, is talking about this now? I mean, at one time, the government seemed to be in denial. Why is this happening now? Well, I guess uh, there's two ways to read this. One is that the government has finally seen the light and that even though they didn't want to talk about this, they didn't want to make this a policy issue, they hoped it was going to go away, that they decided that ultimately it's better that they act. The other is, of course, that there's increasing talk around town in Ottawa of uh, of an election in the next year or so. And so that this is a way for the Liberals to actually buy time by saying that, look, we're not going to hold an election before we fix the, fix the foreign interference thing and the foreign interference thing is going to take a while to fix so that this is a way for, themsel- for, for them to insulate themselves from an election to buy some runway, uh, you know, the audience can judge for themselves uh, whether you take the, uh, uh, the, the, the functional view, you take the cynical view on this. Uh, obviously, the public uh, majority of the public has been looking for a public inquiry into all of this, which just has not happened as uh, at this point. It just seems to get pushed down the road. We're waiting to hear what David Johnston says about this, hopefully in the next month or so. Is this admitting that there was interference? Because, again, it was directly posed to the prime minister about specific candidates. And, and he didn't really he said he, he really didn't know what was going on. So is this admitting that there was influence? So I guess implicitly, it's an acknowledgement by the public safety minister uh, that at least something needs to be done. Uh, I mean, the the government will likely never sort of admit to what exactly transpired, since that's, of course, one of the things that's under contestation, who knew what, when, where, and what was done or what was not done. Uh, But certainly an acknowledgement that this is an issue that is a live issue and an issue that is going to be with us for the foreseeable future, and that if other allies have acted, uh, that this might be a good opportunity for Canada. Um, you know, it's 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 never too late to do the right thing, and so finally to come on board with this. Uh, but as you point out, um, how this shakes out is still uh, an unknown. So, is the government going to announce a public inquiry? Uh, that inquiry is going to take quite some time. You figure at least a year, probably longer. Then it's going to have to come back with recommendations, and the government's going to act or not. Uh, is the government going to pick up on the LeBlanc report and on the 2019 report from the uh, National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians and actually implement those recommendations that have been on the Prime Minister's desk uh, in that particular case for four years now? Um, uh, is the government simply going to 
talk about a foreign a foreign agent registry and that's going to be the only thing they're going to do and sort of take a minimalist approach to try to appease those who are uh, looking for a more robust uh, mechanism. Uh, is the government going to not do anything legislatively, but actually going to have a much more robust DM committee uh, that is going to alert parties much earlier, lower the threshold in terms of foreign interference? Because one of the things that we've learned is that the threshold is way too high uh, for the committee of deputy ministers that is supposedly um, uh, let people know when there are concerns. So, you know, I think there's a there's a wide spectrum of possible action that the government could be taking. And so all we have is a rather vague announcement that apparently now we're going to see some action of some sort. Realistically, Christian, what can be put in place before the next election? Again, if it's within the next year or so, um, what can you do that, you know, I mean, obviously last two elections, nothing's been done. What can be done in such a short period of time? Well, look, I mean, when the government realized that, for instance, the weaknesses in the uh, process of crime, money laundering and uh, um, uh, and, uh, money laundering act, uh, so financial crimes legislations were too weak during the Ottawa convoy, uh, in a matter of weeks, we got legislative change uh, Mm. that changed the powers and the reporting requirements for FinTrack, for instance. So this is a matter of political will. If the government wants to do this uh, and the government is prepared to work with the opposition, uh, in this case, I would say it's pro- you probably want to, since we're talking about elections, you want to have a multi-partisan approach to how you're going to do this. So ideally, you want to have a consensus approach among the liberals, the NDP and the conservatives as to what needs to be done. And, you know, I don't think it's that hard to get everybody on board that this is a live issue and it's in everybody's best interest to shore up the legitimacy of our electoral system, because China has, of course, already won just by seeding doubt here. Uh, then I think this could get done relatively quickly. But of course, you know, the minister announces this now. Parliament rises on June 23rd. So we have about, what, seven weeks or so left of Parliament sitting. Uh, The reality is that uh, it doesn't look like the government, you know, the minister could have introduced actual legislation. The minister could have made a policy announcement. The minister could have um, uh, gone back to Parliament and asked, for instance, for specific spending authorities. Um, But we saw none of that. So my sense is that uh, uh, this is... uh, on a Friday in particular, this is a way sort of to placate those of us who've been raising concerns. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we want to see the details before we get too excited here. Uh, and the safety minister didn't offer any timeline. Is there any reason to believe this will be implemented? And and really, Christian, won't this all come back wailing to the forefront uh, when as soon as an election is announced? Because this will bring all of this out of the weeds again. Well, we can only hope that since this has been an issue that has been, as as has been widely reported, uh, been on the sort of known for several years, often what governments do is they will draft legislation, they will have various policy responses, budgetary responses ready, but they need the right moment in order to roll these out. And so it's entirely possible that some draft legislation is already sitting with public safety that's been sitting with public safety for months or for years. Uh, and that uh, I guess the prime minister's office and the minister's office have decided now is the right time to pull this out and to actually bring it through parliament. Uh, so 
um, so we'll see. And I mean, look, as we saw with C51, for instance, the anti-terrorism legislation um, that uh, that was quite controversial. Um, the government simply limited debate on the matter and, uh, and the government of the day simply pushed it through. So if a government really wants to do something, there's lots of opportunity. And I think in this particular case, unlike C51, uh, there's, I think, a significant uh, um, uh, sympathies from the opposition to try to get something done. Now, whether we can reach agreement with the opposition on what the nature of that, um, of what needs to be done is, we'll have to see. But I think um, there's an opportunity here to have a multipartisan approach and to have a consensus. Um, but uh, the risk is, of course, that the government will, as it has done on so many other issues when it comes to national security and defense, will politicize the matter and try to make it uh, the government versus the opposition rather than bringing everybody together. But I think if it's, the problem is this, we already have such low turnout. If we don't do anything, it risks depressing our turnout even further if Canadians think that their vote ultimately doesn't matter because the game is already rigged. And so what the prime minister, I think ultimately needs to do is take action that reassures Canadians that their vote indeed counts and that the game is indeed fair and that certainly an outside authoritarian hostile power is not um, going to control parts of all of our electoral system. Christian Leprac with us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time and have a great weekend. Thank you, Scott. Same to you and the listeners. All right, lots to talk to Carmen Levy about technology analysts and journalists because uh, there's so many questions to ask, whether it's AI or Bill C-11. Carmi is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right, before we get into AI, because, man, that just it, can, it confuses me and mesmerizes me the more I learn about it. Let's talk about C-11 because this has gone through, what it means, why it was so contentious, and where we are right now with this bill. Well, it has now become law, so the Senate has signed off on it, and now they, they it has received royal assent, and now they're handed over to our national telecom regulator, the CRTC, to engage in public consultation and then create the rules that it's going to then use day to day as as the national regulator. So there's still some work to do yet, but it is now the law of the land. And the good in this is that you know we've had a broadcasting act in place for a very long time. It was last updated in 1991 originated in 1968 i mean this all of this predates the internet predates streaming so Hmm. it's applied to broadcasting but it hasn't applied to digital platforms so there's been this giant gap companies like netflix and spotify and youtube have come into the market they're making billions of dollars off of canadians both subscription revenue as well as advertising but they're not paying back in so they're not paying their fair share which means that all this money's flowing out and Canada's artistic, cultural communities aren't benefiting from it. Broadcasters have to pay, they don't. So this, you know, the if you remember one thing, now it means more money for Canada's artistic community. That alone is worth the price of admission. Yes, there are some flies in the ointment. Uh, there was some concern over the fact that user-generated content is still in there, uh, and the CRTC says it won't regulate it, but it, the, the law is still, it, it's still in the law. And that's a worry. We'll have to watch for it. Uh, but, at, at, and of course, you know, there are, you know, the, 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 the technology companies are kind of not happy because they've had a free ride for a very long time and now they're going to have to pay. And of course they're, you know, uh, obviously they've been protesting all along, but it is the law. That's the way it is. So 
there's no such thing as a perfect law. There are always going to be pieces of it that people aren't happy with, but we're better off with one that is modern and recognizes the realities of digital life than one that has been around for over 30 years uh, and doesn't reflect that at all. And I think that's a good thing if you're a Canadian musician, if you're a Canadian director, producer, actor, writer, whatever it is, if you want a job north of the border, much greater chance of you getting that job now because of this law. So uh, it sounds like everybody likes it except those in the internet industry that are perhaps <laughs> losing from it. I mean, is it is is that the way it is, or is it more controversial than that? I mean, uh, is it just yeah, the big well, companies I mean, that are making? Of, yeah, I mean, a new piece of law, of course, there will always be a, a political facet to it, and in this case, it's pretty clear the conservatives are not are not happy with it. Uh, they have said that they're calling it the censorship law because they are concerned that the government's going to use it to decide what you and I can share on YouTube and Spotify, and that if it doesn't adhere to the rules, it could get taken down. Um, that is, you know, we've seen this happen in other jurisdictions, namely in Europe, and that hasn't been the case. Uh, the reason that this user-generated uh, content clause was included in the law is, uh, according to the Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez, he said uh, that, that essentially he didn't want there to be loopholes that the tech companies could drive through, uh, that if they took these clauses out, that the loopholes would be there, they'd be able to work around them. So this prevents big tech companies from abusing the law. Uh, it holds them accountable. Uh, and at the same time, Canadians will hold the telecom regulator accountable to make sure that uh, we don't have a big brother scenario on social media. That would take a huge amount of resources. Looking at, you know, I've been following the CRTC for much of my career. They're not interested in that. They don't have the resources for that, but they're not funded for that. So yes, it's in the law. Yes, that worries me and I'm not happy about it. But at the same time, I don't see the CRTC turning into George Orwell's 1984 anytime soon. Many are worried when things like this happen that that's it. It's like that for life. I mean, is there room? <laughs> is there openings here? I mean, as we adjust it as we go? Of course there are. And, and I, I think that's the thing. It's like now we have a framework in place. It's a law. But now it's really going to be up to the CRTC based on public consultation to decide what that law looks and feels like in day-to-day -day life. So this is where Canadians can get involved. In Over the next few days, weeks, and months, CRTC is going to announce details on what that public consultation process looks like, and we'll have an opportunity to participate. So if we're not happy uh, about the user-generated content or any other facet of this law, we can share our thoughts with the CRTC and say, hey, as you're bringing this in in Canada, here are the things that we want. Here are the things that we don't want. Now is the time for our voice to be heard. Uh, and so it isn't carved in stone. And as we know, laws have to evolve. And I'm kind of hoping that this one doesn't take 32 years to be updated again to reflect new te technological reality. It really should be a far more frequent and ongoing process. All right, let's talk about AI. It scares the bejeebers out of a lot of people. We've been talking about it at length here, whether it's writing essays for your kids or creating a new business model or design or what have you. I, I saw this, and you're going to help have to help me understand this as well, but it seems that kids are using this to create their own entertainment. In other words, write me a song about a pizza box, and it will grab all this stuff and then create some sort of whatever, and then they're sharing that. Uh, is, is it what we're creating on it? AI or is is it AI that's the message here? 
I, I think it's a little bit of both. And, and I think this is an example, like when ChatGPT was released to the public in November, it was text only. So you you ask it to do something in text and it spits back a text-based result, whether it's an email message or a term paper or your resume, whatever it is. Well, now we're moving into multimedia. So now you can you can type it and say, build me something, you know, write me a song based on this using, yeah. you know, my my own style. Or, um, you know, make create a video as well. And so I think there's nothing wrong with us rolling up our sleeves and seeing what it, what these new tools can do. They're from companies. There's NVIDIA in Toronto that's working on this, a company called Runway, startup based in New York. Um, you know, there are a number of others that have these, it's called text to video. And it's kind of compelling. Most of the results are really amateur hour still, but yeah. they'll get better over time. Sure. So we play with it. But at the same time, the problem now is as the technology gets better, what happens if we're not just experimenting? What happens if we're really trying to spread misinformation and disinformation? In the U.S., the Republican Party's already released an ad using only AI-based imagery. It's kind of hard to find the asterisk there saying this is created by AI. makes it real easy for legitimate sources of information to share non-legitimate messages, and that's what we really need to be on the lookout for. All right, last week we were all enjoying a song from Drake in the weekend, thinking this is amazing. Hey, that's pretty good. And oh, 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 it's all generated by a ghostwriter and AI. Your thoughts? Uh, huge uh, issues. On, and, and I say this as a content creator myself. I'm a photographer. So there's nothing that's stopping us, using these tools. There's nothing stopping any member of the public from grabbing uh, an individual's uh, content from from the, for the broad-based internet, because it's all out there, and using it to create something new in their image. So someone said, someone told one of these systems, make a song that sounds like Drake and The Weeknd collaborating, and the result is this song that neither one of those individuals, those artists, had anything to do with, and they certainly didn't benefit from it. So there's a huge risk. It's it, it's I don't even know if we can call it copyright, because I don't know if that even applies here, but yeah. you know, of, of having your own intellectual property, your voice, things that you have written being repurposed without your consent, knowledge, or control. Incredibly frightening. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and as always, this is why, it's why we need more Bill C-11, right? So we need rules in place that say, this is what you're allowed to do. This is what you aren't. These are the consequences for crossing moral, ethical, legal, copyright, IP lines. Uh, and that's, we need that sooner rather than later. And we need the government to figure out uh, what this landscape looks like, and we need better legislation. They're moving ahead with it uh, with something called Bill C-27. It is working its way through the pipeline. It, it has to become law because the, the technology is racing ahead. And if we don't have any laws, we're going to see more abuses like this and more Drake the Weekend songs or worse uh, hitting the airwaves uh, in the not too distant future. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. Carmi, always fun. Thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. I will, Scott. You as well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, a lot of people listen to the show and they think that it's uh, me. It's all me. And I cannot take the blame for all of it. Uh, there's a couple of people that work with us, uh, not only producing the show, but then a giant newsroom that stands behind it all and uh, brings us and you the best uh, product we possibly can. And I want to, uh, in, in acknowledging Will Weber, who is leaving us today, I want to acknowledge 
acknowledge Dave Woodard. I want to acknowledge Jen McQueen and everybody in the CHML newsroom who works so hard to put all of this together on a daily basis. Uh, Will Erskine, who books all the guests and is the content producer. And that leaves Will Weber, the guy behind the board that literally pushes all of the buttons and makes it all happen. And Will is leaving for uh, greener pastures within the company, but moving on and uh, on to bigger and better, better things. So we are all here, Dave Woodard, as well as Will Erskine. And uh, I'm not sure if uh, Jen is with us or not. But Jen went home. Jen went home. Okay. So, <laughs> Well-deserved uh, rest. There you go. Absolutely. So, Will, we're all here, and we just want to acknowledge what a great uh, friend you've been to all of us, what a great asset you have been to the show, to this radio station, for everything that you've done uh, over the years and such, and, you know, working your way up through the uh, through the uh, uh, ranks and such, and then, uh, obviously, the pinnacle of what radio is, and that's this show. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no disagreements from me. This is the most creative I've been able to be at this station. So, anyway, uh, so uh, we're all here, and uh, if anybody wants to speak up and say anything, feel free. Uh, Erskine, I'll start with you. Yeah, you I got a couple and... of things to say to the other no, one here. You, you only get one. <laughs> you don't get thing. You get one. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. All right, all right. Well, listen, here's a piece of my mind. You have gone above and beyond, and everyone throws that word around. It is a cliche, but it is true. Every small detail, every amount of effort, you find a new way to put something new into everything you do. And I know that, not just from working with you here, but from working with you in theater outside of the radio station as well, and from being your friend. You are a fantastic person to know. You are a joy to know. I love you, I will miss you, and I wish you all of the best. Well, it's a really good thing that you can't hear blushing through the radio. Radio, uh, and, and you when know, it gets uh, that red. and you know, coming for, coming from a man who regularly throws axes uh, around the room, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty uh, high compliment. Yeah, that's a pretty high compliment. Dave Woodard, you want to add a newsroom perspective to this? Uh, I have nothing to add to what <laughs> Will's already said. Uh, first of all, Will Weber—that's your name. Um, it's or nice Will to meet you. Two, it's nice to meet you finally uh, by name. Uh, no, it, it's one of those things that, <laughs> as you as you very well know, Scott. And Will and Will, uh, I came here about a year and a bit ago from Toronto. Uh, and whenever you you start in a new venture or a new place, uh, there's always some uh, some issues that you have to kind of get through. And and one of the things that I didn't ever have to deal with is the the uh, the quality of of the shows that I was working with. And and that has oh. a lot to do uh, with the people behind the board, and behind the glass. And thank you very much, Will Weber. I know that you're going to do great in Toronto. Make sure you get down the slide. Make sure <laughs> yeah. that uh, you do have fun out there. And, and uh, uh, it's a great place to work. And there's some great people there. And you'll be among some uh, amazing people. Uh, Will, of course, is going to chorus in Toronto. Tell us what you're going to do, Will. I'm going to be part of the broadcast network monitoring team. I'm going to be an operator over there. Uh, don't have the full details yet on exactly what the job entails, right? It's one of those, like, how do you put it on paper kind of dealies, but it's mostly going to be, yeah, quality checking uh, all of the uh, course television feeds that originate from Toronto. So if people are watching the TV, they can thank Will Weber. Yes. There you go. <laughs> if the captions and, are legible, that's me making sure they're fine. Hey, remember at Channel 11, we're all watching, and all of a sudden the porn came on? Like, if that happens, <laughs> Will, we'll blame you. Uh, if it does not... Uh, get off the air within one minute, then then it's my fault. Oh. Then we thank Will Weber. Oh, 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 oh. 
I see how it all works now. All right, Will. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you know, if you get sick and tired of Toronto, you can always come back. We'll love you and return uh, with a hug and such. May, uh, I, but, have uh, a, may I have a uh, all-request Friday? Sure. Do you want it? Yeah, you you go ahead. You finish off with everyone. I'll shut up. (laughs) I wanted to uh, bring us in with this before we uh, settle on the Roy Rogers. Because, uh, Scott, you always say, well, you just have the most diverse taste in music, most eclectic taste in music I've ever heard. Let let me know if you've ever heard this song played on the radio or even. Goodbye. Why is it sad? Makes us remember the good times we've had. I have no Much idea. <laughs> We're all joining arms and swaying together. That's Scooter from the Muppets. The Muppets take Manhattan. <laughs> Holy jeez. <laughs> well, there you go. The most eclectic taste in uh, media right here, Will Weber. Will, on behalf of all of us, uh, been such a pleasure. We're very proud of you. Good luck, congratulations, and kick ass. Have a good time. Thank you so much, Scott. As always, and thank you to the rest of the crew uh, again. Man, there's so many people that go behind putting this great station together, and each and every one of them is uh, as great and contributes as much as Will does. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. David, no relation to Dave Woodard, wrote in to say, Hello, Scott. It's great to hear that Will is moving on to be the new production, new producer for the great Roy Green, as that would be the only thing better than being your producer. He's not that far off. I was for a while, but... Uh- <laughs>